Hey, and welcome to episode five of the Bods Podcast. We are going to be talking about a l- very intricate part of the Leafs today. Uh, rather than focusing on the players, I know we've been talking a lot about them and you know potential lineups and stuff like that. Uh, but today we're going to be focusing on more of the front office side of the Maple Leafs. So we're going to be looking at management we're gonna go from shanny to dubas and then you know look at uh all all the different coaches we've had um both you know head and assistant coaches um in the last couple years and you know just kind of go through how this team was built and give our own analysis on what we think of how this team was built where we may have gone wrong where we think things are looking good Um, And basically just try to provide some insight into where this team is going uh, based off of what they've done so far. Uh, So we're going to be covering a few different topics. And the the first one to get things going uh, will just be general thoughts on how management has built this team. Um, The second one will be uh, we're going to dive into an analysis of of Cal Dubas that we're going to be looking at. Uh, Sheldon Keefe and his supporting staff. Uh, And then we'll be moving on to some special teams action and and looking at what we want to see moving forward on the power play and penalty kill and, you know, compare it to what we've seen in the past. And we'll be closing things off with the Buds or Duds Management Edition. All right, so to get things off, general thoughts on how this team has been built by management. Kian, as always, let's get her going. So how has management built this team? And it's really interesting when you look back all the way to when, you know, Shanahan first came in. Because right? when Shanahan first came in, this organization was a disaster. He sat back for a year and then, you know, scorched earth, built everything from, a gr- from the ground up. Eventually he wanted the Maple Leafs to become a phoenix. Burn it all up and restart. And, you know, that all started with bringing in Lou. It started with, you know, trading away Phil Kessel. It started with bringing in Babcock, and obviously Lou took over from there. Now, you allow, you, we, we got to see what Dubas did in the AHL, building that team to obviously you know, a league champion. And then Lou kind of ran his course, and you know we can all you know speak to the, about the, the great positives of having Lou, like the Riley or, um, or the Anderson contract. But we can also be, speak to, you know, some of the negatives, like the uh, Zaitsev contract or the Marlowe contract. So there's definitely things that Dubas kind of inherited from the Leafs, uh, from the previous managers, that people really don't, they don't think it's as big a deal as it is when it comes to the decisions that need to be made in the management area. So when I look at the way the team has been built under Kyle Dubas, who took over you know, May 11, 2018 at this point, so you know, still, still under you know, about two years, and he's made some really smart trades, and and a lot of and and the, the crazy thing is, is, a lot of the trades that he's been forced to make have been kind of you know fixing some of the issues that were left over from him, from from you know Lou Lamarillo. Because like if you look at his first trade, right, it was trading away a you know Jimmy Vc's brother for a seventh round pick, so a guy who was not going to make it to the NHL for a you know a potential lottery pick. And you also trade away, you know, your first round pick at 25th for, you know, 29th and 76th. And you pick up, you know, Rasmus Sandin at 29 
Vigo Semiendura Argentinov uh, at at seventy six, both prospects that could potentially make the team. And then you have obviously a bunch of other smaller deals and you know moving out players like Connor Carrick and Andrew Nielsen. Um, you know, trading, bringing in Michael Hutcherson last year to try and kind of shore up the back end, which obviously didn't work out very well. You had uh, the, you know, the Jake Muzzin trade for, you know, Carl Gunstrom, who I still think will be an NHL player at this point, and Sean Dursey as well as giving up a first-round pick. And then you have things like the, you know, the Patrick Marlowe trade, which everyone talks about, and obviously it made the force of the Leafs to give up a first-round pick, but, like, we needed to get that six and a half, $6.2 million off the cap for his 38 year old player so like a lot of the picks that the, the trades that he's been forced to make you know even looking at that ottawa trade moving zaitsev out and connor brown because it's, it's just kind of getting rid of contracts and trying to give the leafs more cap flexibility and i think those are that, the outcomes of that are a little bit overlooked where i think dubis made the his first kind of main misstep was uh the cadre the cadre trade and it sucks that Kadri turned down the trade to Calgary because it might have been a better fit. But uh, yeah, the Calgary, the 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 Kadri trade to Colorado for Dyson Berry is, at, in hindsight, a horrific deal. Yeah, not not good for sure. Um, but you know, in a trade like that, hindsight's twenty twenty, and at the time it looked like a great deal. And I personally was super excited to see Tyson Berry come here. And you know, it, it's just disappointing how it all turned out and you know at the same time it means we don't have to pay him <laughs> so I mean, he's only making four and a half i i know but he was also in a contract year whereas he should have been getting paid in this free agency but because of his shit performance and the the pandemic you know he just got a one year pretty cheap deal mm-hmm. right so it, it, there's a bunch of ways to look at it but at the same time you know, at the time, that seemed like a good trade. I would have made that trade in a heartbeat. And you can't really hold that against Dubas because, sure, we can look back and be critical about it, but it's not something he could have possibly foreseen. Um, but, I mean, if I'm going into my general thoughts on how management has built this team, um, obviously Kyle Dubas is such a huge part, and we had the privilege of seeing the championship team in the Marlies. Um, and we got to see the team that, you know, Dubas built and, and saw that it, it worked, you know, it actually worked. And that, that's one of the biggest things we got to see one of the first hockey championships in Toronto and fuck, who knows how long, right? Way too long. And that, that was something special. And even though it's the AHL sure, it's, it's still the Calder cup. It still meant something. And for him, we hope that that same GM come is the one we have with the Maple Leafs, but at the same time, you're with the big boys now. Like there's gonna be everybody should have expected there to be a learning curve. And if I'm gonna be critical about it, you you have to give the guy a few breaks. And in Dubas's credit, he's owned up to every mistake he's ever made, and that is is so respectable. So. I, I'm just happy to see we have a competent GM for the first time in a long time. You know, besides Lou, Lou did some brilliant things for us, you know, creating the whole Robita Island and, you know, making some players disappear. Poof. 
Yeah, fantastic. Like Lou J- was like the guy. J- JVR, just like, I'm injured for the rest of the year, guys. I promise. I'm not going to play. I'm just going to make us real bad so we can get Austin Matthews. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Lou is, is really just the architect behind it all because he just knew, okay, this team is a complete shit show. I need to make some bad deals disappear. And that's exactly what he did. So... Even though he didn't leave a perfect model for Dubis, Dubis still learned a lot from from Lamorello, and he, uh, you can see that he is still learning. Obviously, he's still really young, and uh, his value is increasing the, because he was mentored by Lou Lamorello, and now you can kind of see the Lou Lamorello training start to to creep in a little bit. Because he's starting to think back to what, oh, what would Lou have done in this situation? And it's nice to see because he was not thinking that at first. Um, I would I would subtly disagree with that because I was someone who, when Dubas was first brought into the organization, you know, he he had, was coming off a really successful record, uh, kind of track record in the OHL with the Susie Way Greyhounds and was really kind of put forward as this kind of hockey product, like hockey analytical prodigy. So just to be clear here, you're going to be going into your in-depth analysis of Kyle Dubas right yeah. now. Okay, let's let's hear it. And when he first came in to the organization, Shannon spoke so incredibly highly of of him as an individual, both from his hockey knowledge, but also just like him as a as a person. And I think that was something that really stood out for me, and I felt. Through the first, you know, two and a half years he was in the organization, or I guess almost four years in the organization, actually, every single time I saw him speak to the media, I was always really impressed with what he had to say, the opinions that he had, and the direction that he thought that the team and organization should go. And I, I've always backed him because I really agreed with a lot of the things that he, he was saying. And, and I felt a lot of people threw him under the bus saying that he was just you know, purely the analytical guy. But at the same time, I saw him as someone who was able to identify where in a team you need to push harder on the numbers or push harder on the eyes. And I think the moves he made in this specific offseason are the perfect representation of that. So many people, you know, look at last year's team and say, hey, that, that team is built entirely by Kyle Dubas. It's entirely in his in in his kind of you know stature. Vision. Vision, yeah, vision's a better word. And I would disagree with that because if you look at someone like the likes of Cody Cece, he is there because of Zaitsev. He's on our team because we had to get rid of Zaitsev and that horrific contract that Lou Lamoureux gave him. Our, our, we had to spend less on our back, our, our bottom half of our, our forward lineup because we had to get rid of Marlowe's $6.25 million and had to get rid of a first-round pick. Like there's there's just so many little little things that are essentially remnants that of 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 Lou Lou moves. So I see this year as truly being the first team where every single player on this team is there because of Kyle Dubas and a move that he chose to make. So I'm where everyone had those doubts and opinions last year. That's kind of where I'm at this year. Is like this is now the team that is truly in the vision of Kyle Dubas because it's a good combination of players who speak to that number side of his, his background, but also kind of speaking to the eye test of it all and the motivations of it all and, 
and how to kind of get a, the rah-rah around the team, which explains the additions of someone like uh, TJ Brody, who really speaks to the numbers side and improving our defensive core, but then improve, adding someone like Wayne Simmons or Joe Thornton, who would are actually going to impact us more on the ta- uh, intangible side, where they're going to impact the locker room, and they're going to you know chip in when we need to and add a little bit of grit and leadership within 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 games. And I think those are things that he was able to identify after kind of evaluating last year. And I think that's just, you know, proof in the, is in the pudding as far as him really, you know, growing as a general manager in his role and, and understanding the impact that he has and the decisions that he needs to make in order to build a, a championship team here. Well, I, I'm, I think it speaks a lot to his character, just the way he conducts himself. And one thing I, I always noticed since day one with Kyle Dubas is, First was the intelligence of this guy. And it's just very evident in the way he speaks and just the way he presents himself. It's in a very professional, respectful manner. He's always he's extremely well-spoken. And one thing, I, it's one of the little things that I love to hear is whenever he was being interviewed by the media or just like doing a post-game scrum or post-trade scrum, whatever it is, he would always look whoever's speaking to him in the eye and call them by name. And it's just something small like that. But to me, that makes a huge difference because there's like 99% of all other GMs don't do that at all. They pretend like the media don't even exist, but Ubis is different. You know, he kind of looks them in the eye and, you know, he respects them as an individual, as a person and addresses them as such and will answer their question. Do you think that might be a byproduct of the fact that he entered the league in the, in, in Toronto where he's surrounded by that level of media everywhere? And in turn, if he had entered the league in, say, a, a much smaller market team like the Carolinas of the world, would he have that same stature to the media in a much smaller market where you're not dealing with, with as many people? Oh, I'm sure it has everything to do with Toronto, especially being with the Marlies. He probably got the same media attention as maybe the Coyotes. So, <laughs> so you know, <laughs> Toronto media attention is a, a different level, even with the Marlies. That's true. Even with the Marlies. They get I'd say the Marlies has better coverage than a lot of NHL six, teams. 60% of NHL teams. Yeah. They have great coverage, and that's because it's Toronto, and they just eat up hockey. But it just says a lot about Dubas's character, and as far as his hockey IQ and things go, a lot of people bash him because he's never really played the game, but he and he was seen as an analytical guy, and I have no problem with that because it's been proven to work in other sports, and it's important. It's a it's a foundation to uh, to anything you want to build is is analytics. So it's great to have. Because an analytics guy can learn the other stuff, but as somebody who knows just the other stuff can't learn the analytics. So it, it's a, a very niche skill to have, and Dubas has it, and that, that's a good thing. And, and the nice thing is to see that he's he's the opposite of, of Babcock in the sense that he's not at all stubborn. He is the first person to admit when he's wrong and will do everything he can to correct it. And, and I think the off-season signings were... Just the perfect example of that, where he's bringing in all these tough and le- like leadership type of guys, whereas everything he had done in the past was contrary to that. So that just shows that, it, like you said, he, he's growing as a general manager, and he's showing that in his moves, and he's open to listening to new ideas, and that that is really refreshing. 
And, and the same thing goes for, for Sheldon Keefe because he, he's kind of taking the same approach. He's been Kyle Dubas's guy for, for quite some time now, and they both approach the game in the same way where they know that they don't know all the answers. And I feel like that's great knowledge to have because not many people are, are big enough to actually admit that. So before you get too deep into to Sheldon Keefe, how do you feel the impact of a Bab? What do you think of the feel like the impact was of Babcock on on Dubas? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, Dubas he obviously had a lot of mentors, but I think there was just a lot of friction in that relationship for the exact reason that I just outlined. He is the opposite of Babcock. Babcock is a stubborn man who knows what worked for him in the past and never wants to change it. And sure, that's good. And nobody can take away his cups and his gold medals, and that's all great. But in the NHL, it's a rapidly changing league. And if you don't adapt and change, you are going to die. And that's exactly what happened with Mike Babcock. And there's a reason Kyle Dubas is still around and Mike Babcock is not. Because Mike Babcock was stuck in his ways and refused to change. Kyle Dubas is open to new possibilities and is willing to flip the script on what everybody thinks about him if it's going to make the team better. So then how does Sheldon Keefe better fit that mold? So Sheldon Keefe better fits that mold because he is so familiar with Kyle Dubas and how he does things. And he's very much embraced what Kyle Dubas does and how he runs things. And a lot of that is because Kyle Dubas kind of gave him the opportunity to get back into coaching and it started in the Sioux. And that long relationship is, is really good to have, especially when now they're pro, you know, GM and coach. And that mentality is, is contagious. If you're working with somebody who has those strong beliefs for so long and they act upon them, you're going to pick that up. And I think Sheldon Keefe is the perfect example because like everybody said, he is the opposite of Babcock. And that, and that's what I just said about Dubas. Keefe is cut from the same cloth. He's willing to mix things up. That's why we saw all these crazy-ass line pa- line pairings to well throughout many parts of the season and even in the playoffs. He was never afraid to tinker. And you got to have that as a coach because it's a mental battle between your coach and the other coach and your constant it's kind of like a chess game and you're just trying to figure out what the next move is what are you what is that coach thinking and what can i do in response to that that that's the mindset of a coach constantly and it, it comes down to strategy right so who you who you're deploying at what times who your matchups are what type of player they're running what can i do to get around that play and, and those are all the technical things that Sheldon Keefe really values and he really shows that by how much he's willing to change on the fly. Like you might see three or four different lineups within one game and that some people might say, Oh, it messes with chemistry, but here's the thing. Every team is different. Every opponent is different. Every opponent has different strengths, different weaknesses. And if you're not able to analyze those strengths and weaknesses and format your own lineup lineup to match and hopefully beat those opponents, then you shouldn't even be in the league. I mean, I don't know if it's that, that's simplified. I mean, when I look at the way Babcock handled, especially the playoffs, it was that 
he felt that balance was the only way to beat the team. And therefore, every decision he made was to that specific outcome. And essentially just kept repeating and repeating and repeating. And, and if you look back to his old Red Wings teams, he always had that balance, which is why he has that opinion. And the Leafs, when he came here, he almost had too much high-end talent that he almost didn't know what to do with it, which is why he kept separating Marner and Matthews and never really wanted to give them an opportunity because he always had that opinion of they need to be able to drive their own lines. But, like, you literally have a star center and a star winger. Let them play together, right? And that's kind of where Dubis comes in with this kind of fresh mindset of being willing and open to try anything at any point, at any time. And I think especially in the playoffs where it's, and obviously people say like, oh, it must have been chemistry, whatever, but it's the subtle changes mid game that can have the biggest impacts, right? Because you don't necessarily have to shake up the lines to just to try something new, right? You could have a, you could have Marner and Matthews playing on the, on a different line all, all game. And then, you know, you're, you know, seven minutes left in the third period in a tie game and you try to decide to to overload a line just to catch the other team's coach off guard. And that was something that Babs never tried. No. He, like, and especially when I think back to like the old Blackhawks teams, you know, the 2010s and 2015 teams, like they would do that all the time where they would, you know, they would play, you know, uh, Kane and Taves separately for most of the game and then combine them when they really needed a goal. And I would just catch people off guard because they're like, well, do, well, which one are we going to target first? And then all of a sudden, you have both of them playing at the same time, and you're just like, oh, fuck. And, you know, you're, and then the puck's in the back of your net. And so, like, that experimentation, that openness to shift is where I feel like Keith will be able to better utilize the team in front of him, where Babcock was just kind of too set in his ways. Yeah, exactly. And it's that little deception that could be the difference between winning or losing a game. And that's why those Blackhawks teams were so successful because they caught their, uh, the op- opposition's coaches off guard. Right. So they they were prepared to either, you know, cover K uh, Kane or cover Taves, not both. <laughs> when it's both they're they're scrambling. And now the coach is like trying to quickly draw, jot something down and jot up a play, something to cover them. But guess what? If it's a line change, it's done in seconds. So you don't really have time to come up with a, a counterplay. And then the attacking team has the the advantage. I mean, we do it on dangles all the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, if you think about when we need a goal and the, the net is pulled, we One put all of, of our best players on the, line, on, the, on the ice, right? And it's like it, all those players might pay on separate lines at a time, but then if you're putting all your best players, we need a goal. Like, that's just, like, what you do. And, like, people only think – a lot of coaches only think of doing that when – the net is the goalie's pulled versus like, why wouldn't you just try that at, you know, the last minute of a period where you might be down a goal and you just kind of, you're, you know, you have a minute left, you know, it's a low risk and you just want to see if you can push for a goal in the last minute, which is always detrimental to momentum. So I I'm really excited to see Keith in a full, full season, really see how that exper- experimentation and freedom affects the player's kind of mentality throughout the season and how and how they go about playing the game. Because sometimes it almost seemed like they were afraid to make a mistake because they didn't want to get reamed out by Babcock. And obviously people are like, oh, but like, you know, Keith took over in November. He had so much time. And it's like, dude, he took middle of November 
and then had a pandemic hit. Like he had literally like what three months with his team before you know going Until on a hiatus, gets, and then thrown back you know, into a plane. Like the guy hole. has not really had a chance to you know build the culture that he wants his team to play like. So I feel like it's not fair to try and judge Keith off of what this season was. Yeah, and this season is truly his his first season evaluation. And yeah, it's, and it's going to be a short season anyways too. And that's the thing; he's getting back to back short season yeah, so it's like kind it's, of unfortunate yeah it, it's tough you know coming into a new situation like that and you're immediately doing back-to-back short seasons makes it hard to get to know your team and the other other thing is i love the relationship between keith and the rest of his coaching staff specifically because i hated the relationship between babcock and mm-hmm. the rest of his coaching staff Whereas for Babs, the Leafs purposely brought in two former, well, two was it two former, former head, head coaches? coaches? Yeah, yeah. Mc, Paul McFarlane, who is head coach in uh, Florida, and Dave Haxtall, who who was head coach in Philly. Mm-hmm. And there's a no, re- sorry, McFarlane was an assistant coach, but he ran their power play in Florida. Okay, that gotcha. Um, so yeah, sorry, McFarlane was the assistant. But he was in charge of the power play, and that's the thing. The Leafs' power play before McFarlane was brought in was abysmal. It was so bad. And that's kind of why they brought in one of the best power play specialists in the league. And what bothered me more than anything was Babcock didn't even give him the chance to orchestrate the power play. It started off great. It, like The power play started off banging. And then it just fell off. You know why? Because it kept having that Babcock influence where they were doing the drop pass fucking around in the neutral zone and you'd barely spend any actual time in the offensive zone to generate anything and it's that drop pass that you would point out on every single power play that never changed never changed despite the the changing assistance and then we realized that's what made me made us realize is okay it's not the assistants that are the problem here it's well, it was weird coach. that when as soon as Babcock was gone, the 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 entrance to the it's not like they didn't it's not like they stopped doing the drop pass altogether. And my issue wasn't even that the drop pass was there. That and the cross ice pass was the big one. Yeah, but like my issue with the drop pass was that that was their entrance every single time. Yeah, there they was never no change. There was no variance. Like the the other teams, the like, like penalty killers were like, oh, okay, guys, let's just stand on the let's just stand on the red line and wait for the inevitable drop pass because it doesn't matter how good they are, how much space they have, they're gonna do it anyways, and we'll just try and capture it and go. And like, that's why we get loud so many fucking shorthanded goals because the other team just know what we were fucking doing. So that's why I, like I like why I get so frustrated with that. It's just like why do you keep doing the same fucking thing? It is the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over, expecting a different result. And, and it's crazy when you have the players like you that you do. When you have the likes of Marner and Nylander and Matthews, who can easily, easily carry the puck into the through the neutral zone. Into All the other it, end. They're so fast. All it would take is the chip. Exactly. Like, and like and like and then even on the second power play, would they still do the exact same thing? Where where last year they had the likes of Zach Hyman, the freaking dog on a bone forechecker. Literally, all you do is throw that puck into the corner, and that man is getting there first. But no, no, they're going to do the drop pass back to Riley on the second power play, and then kill all the time they the what the twenty seconds the second power play unit gets. Like, come on, they gotta be it more, was you got to be more efficient. It was infuriating to watch Babcock, just in general, because of those things where we could notice these issues. So why can't he notice these issues? Right, the guy who's paid millions of dollars to be the highest paid coach in NHL history. 
and he can't realize that doing the same thing over and over and over and over is not going to work like that. I don't know. That seems like coaching one-on-one to me, but then again, we're looking at two different generations of coaches here. Mm-hmm. Babcock is very much a part of the old boys club. Well, I mean, his last successful season was, I mean, I mean his last win was in 2009. So literally 11 Detroit, years ago yeah. and his last playoff win, I think was 2011. It was a first round victory. Yeah, so like it's not a great like what have you done for me lately, right? You yeah, know, <laughs> exactly, right. That, like that's always something that comes up. Is what do you what have you done for me lately? Well, that, I'm excited to see what Keith can do, and, and I'm confident. And that's what I love about Keith is like here's the flip side of the coin is with Keith, whenever there was even a stoppage in play, the first thing he would do is consult with his assistant. You could see him constantly talking to them, and he realizes the experience that these guys have. And they're not just there to look pretty on the bench, you know, like they're not just there to put on a suit and show up. They are there for a reason. They have a part of the team that they need to control. And the beauty is Sheldon Keefe is putting is taking his walls down and welcoming all input from his assistants, Mm -hmm. evaluating their experience over everything. He's realizing that, hey, these guys I may be their their head coach, but they have way more experience in the NHL than me, so I'm going to soak up all the information that I can from them. I mean, even beyond that, because I don't I don't disagree with that at all. But what what I feel is he does is he gives them gives them the the, the kind of rope to actually do their thing. Exactly. Right. Like if you look at like how he ran practice and how they had those like skill training sessions where they were run by the assistants, like and had the power play drills that are run by the assistants, and it's just like. He's giving them the autonomy to do what they're fucking there to do and not having to be the crazy puppet master of that Babcock controlling every little aspect that goes on. Yeah, you can't micromanage your assistants when they're that experienced. Exactly. And especially if you're less experienced. So it takes a big man to realize that, that you know, to, to put yourself in Sheldon Keefe's position, he realized that he is the less experienced of the bunch, yet he's in a superior position. He... You know, ate a piece of humble pie and, <laughs> and you know, decided to sit back and listen to what these guys had to say and value their opinions and implement their opinions because that is how success brews because it's it's a team. Like, from well, the assistants well, to the I'm trainers so, to the so players. I decided to see him work with his his new assistants this year and Paul yeah. McClain and, um, fuck, what's, his other, what's the other guy's name? Manny Malhotra? Manny Malhotra, that's the other guy. And like Paul McLean specifically, like I know we call him the Walrus and whatever. He but is the Walrus. Yeah, but he he has got a phenomenal track record when it comes to he's coaching. He's a good coach. Like he's and a good coach. Like I mean, you're talking about a guy who won the Jack Adams Award in Ottawa. Like like this guy knows what he's doing. Like that team he coached in Ottawa was horrible. It was a bad fucking team. And he's coming on just pretty much as an advisory role mm-hmm. as an assistant to, to Keith, which is and that's the beauty is it, you know kind of circling back to my first point is. He's going to value the opinion of McLean. He's going to ask him so many questions and really like pick his brain to, to get all that information out and implement it into the team because that's what he's there for. I mean, I'm, I actually don't even know which of them is responsible for the power player penalty kill. Yeah, we don't, don't really. But I'm curious to see what they end up doing with the structure of it and if they shift it around with the new additions at all. Like I think the first power play probably stays probably the exact same with the addition of Riley instead of Barry, but the second power play is one that I'm kind of most curious about. Yeah, I mean the power play is definitely an interesting one, uh, and it's a good segue into our next topic, which will just be uh, what we each want to see moving forward in both the power play and the penalty kill. 
uh, and just comparing it to what we've seen in the past. Hmm. So we'll start with each of us doing the power play, and then we'll move on to the penalty. Sounds good. I mean, when I look at the power play, I like our first power play unit is so ridiculously talented that it should score at a like a, a an insane clip. Like an insane clip. If they actually like let them do their own like honestly I know it makes sense to have structure, but sometimes like with the amount of talent on that power play, I also just want to send them out there and say, you know, do your thing. Like be creative, see what you can can you do what you can do. Because I honestly don't feel like that like adding a structure to players that talented is actually gonna impact them in a positive way. Because it's gonna make them predictable and the whole draw of all those players is that they are unpredictable that they have so much skill and so much talent they can do things the other team doesn't expect and so i i personally i wouldn't want any structure to the first power play just have you know tavares matthews marner neilander riley and just let them fucking do their thing and where you would implement the structure is on the second power play unit where you don't have that insanely high-end talent you probably got a lot you know slower footed people and so you want a little bit more structure there to you know make sure things are facilitated properly so when I look at my second power play unit, I have, you know, Kerf on the left wing, Joe Thornton playing center, Wayne Simmons is that net foot presence. On the back end, you got Jimmy VC on the left point and TJ Brody on the right point. Um, so, you know, take advantage of Brody with his, you know, booming clapper. Joe Thornton has insane, ridiculous power, uh, you know, vision and, and playmaking ability. Kerfoot's speed and VC shot from the back. And then Wayne Simmons to just cause wreak havoc in front of the net like he's done his whole career. You know, that's uh, an interesting way to go about it. Mine is so so similar, but there's just a, v- a few tweaks that I have. Um, as far as the power play goes, I definitely agree. We need to stack that first power play unit. I have JT in front of the net, you know, with Marner on the right side and Matthews on the left side. Um, and, and then I, I got William Nylander and Morgan Riley as, as the D pairing. Um but you know, you're right. The power play too is where things get interesting. So I've got Mikheyev on mm. the left side, Thornton in in front of the net, and Simmons on the wing. Interesting. Why not? Why wouldn't you put Thornton in a position to use his playmaking ability? If you're putting him in front of the net, he's more of a net front presence than anything. Well, I'm not necessarily putting him in front of the net. I'm just putting him in the center position. Mainly because I think he's better at faceoffs than either. Of the yeah, but team. like in the offensive zone on a power play, this the actual positions don't matter as much. It's more the defensive zone where the and like it's not like he wouldn't be taking faceoffs even if he's playing the side boards on the power play. Fair, yeah. I mean, I would have Simmons in front of the net. Yeah, well, so then then we're the but same. I, but <laughs> I would have Thornton playing center. Yeah, of if course that makes sense. Yeah, of, of <laughs> course he's playing center. He's like he's the most experienced one there. But I'm saying, like, on the power play, he's not a net front presence. <laughs> no, no, no. no. I, I'm just he's, saying how I have... He's still playing on the boards. <laughs> no, I, I'm just saying how I have the lineup, you know, based off position, right? Right. So then what do you have the back of that? Uh, on the back end, I actually tried to stray a little bit from the norm of throwing a forward on the back end, and, and I kept two D-men, and that's the pairing of TJ Brody and Jake Muzzin. And my reasoning there is... They both have lethal clappers. And that means no matter where you are, either of them could be teeing you up. And TJ Brody's pretty quick on his feet to cover the lack of speed from Jake Muzzin. 
Um, but and for a second power play unit, they're they're not going to see much time anyway. So I, I figure, what what's the the risk in having an extra D man out there, especially because they'll probably catch the tail end of a penalty. So in that situation, you'd rather have two D men out there. My one pushback on that is that like Muzzin be playing his strong side, not his offside. Therefore, his opportunities for one timers are minimal, where everything is basically going to Brody. And at that point, why wouldn't you want a faster-footed, better playmaking player in that position who could make better use of the space that he would get at that point position than Jake Muzzin, who you know, does definitely have a strong shot, but not one that's going to be effectively used on a power play that has the shot of Brody there and the you know net front presences of, of Simmons and the playmaking ability of Thornton to throw it over to the likes of you know, a Kerfoot or a Mikheyev in your case. Well, there's one thing I've always valued on a power play that not many people would agree with is a defenseman's ability to keep the puck in. And on the power play, that is crucial. And Jake Muzzin is best at it just because he's fucking huge. Uh, and, and yeah, I understand the mobility aspect, but I've just seen so many times where uh, a forward in the defenseman's position sticks around with the puck too much and ends up giving a, a shorthanded chance the other way because they just don't know how to position themselves to prevent that from happening because they're not defensive. I mean, dude, we grew up in an era with, you know, Brett Levda and Martin Marinson and Aki Berg. Like, we grew up with defensemen who don't know how to do that. So, like... Fair enough. I don't know how but much I trust defensemen We're defense talking general. about an, a Leafs team where we finally don't <laughs> have that problem. <laughs> so why not use the D-men that you got? <laughs> I mean, I, I honestly, the reason why I wouldn't have Jake Muzzin there is because he's going to be playing so many minutes on the PK and every... and and shut down roll and other tough minutes that he doesn't need the additional minutes of the penalty kill of the power play. Like give the guy a rest during the game. Like I get that you want to take advantage of his shot, but he's not going to get that many shooting opportunities playing left D on a power play. And I would rather give that ice time to a forward. Who's not getting that much ice time in the bottom six and take advantage of their skill and playmaking ability and shots themselves. Well, if I were to put a forward there, it'd probably be VC, and that's the same as yours, and that's no fun. Well, that's not true. You have McCabe. I have Kerfoot. Suit man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a nice transition into the into the penalty kill where I do have McCabe. <laughs> like right. my my first my first PK unit. Like when I think about the penalty kill, like when I was growing when we were growing up, like the least penalty kill was was like dangerous. Like we, I, I, the one that sticks out to me the most is is Sundin and McGillney. Like anyone who was a Leaf fan in the early two thousands, like when Sundin and McGillney were killing a penalty together, you could almost guarantee there was going to be some sort of opportunity to score, and they would do it a lot. Yeah, McGillney's speed, like those guys were just Sundin's shot, were, were just, just so those, lethal. Yeah, together. like terrifying. Like you, you wouldn't want to have them killing penalties against you because you wouldn't. If well, you make one mistake, it's in the back of your net. And for so long, the Leafs didn't have that threat. When we lost that, I, I we had it for a bit with uh, with Bozak and JVR. I know they they formed a pretty formidable penalty killing pair duo for a bit, but not really to the same extent. And I feel like this team has that true capability to really kind of have that on two separate lines 
And so the way I built my penalty kills is with that in mind, is that you want to have a penalty killing tandem that has the speed to effectively play the defensive end, but is a threat on the offensive end to keep that power play on the toes. So this is how it breaks down. My first penalty kill unit I have on the front end, Zach Hyman and Mitch Marner. So you got the tenacity of Hyman and the speed of Marner and, and offensive capabilities of him. And then on the second PK, sorry, I guess on the back end on the PK one, I have Muzzin and Hall, which is already a proven shutdown pair playing, playing PK. I have the exact same for my first PK. <laughs> and my, my second PK, I have Mikheyev and Kerfoot. And on the back end, I got Riley and Brody. Fuck off, man. <laughs> 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 it's almost like we're brothers and we have similar opinions. Jesus, like, we're, like, the exact same. I may as well not even do my fucking penalty kill. Because it's the exact same thing. Well, then why don't you help me explain why it's so good? Sorry, sorry. I mean, the Marner-Hyman combination is one of my favorites, mainly because Hyman is the... You know, like the best penalty a, killer. A dog on Robbie. Literally, meat, arguably he, one of the best penalty killers in the league. Yeah. Like the hustle's there. He's always grinding in the corners in the offensive zone on the penalty kill. Whereas Marner, he he's willing to put his put some stuff on the line, you know, to, to get in front of shots and, and make those plays. And uh, I feel his hope is to, you know, get a rebound off himself and then go on a breakaway and score. It was crazy. He's pretty good at doing. It was crazy. If, if I had it my way, the first penalty kill would be Matthews and Martyr, and the second penalty kill unit would be McCabe and Hyman. I think it's insane that you want Matthews to be one of the best defensive centers in the league, and then he doesn't kill penalties. If you look at the other best defensive centers in the league. Look at Taves, man. Look at Bergeron. Look at Kopitar. They all kill penalties. Can you imagine a power play unit having to deal with Austin Matthews' shot coming in on a, short, a shorthanded rush? And his speed and hockey IQ, like, I get you don't want to overplay him, but like, man, he'd be so deadly in there. I want to see it. Just try one you know time. What? I, Just try one time. If there was anybody who was going to try, it would be Shelton Keefe, man. So <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if he gives it a go because I'm sure he wants to tap into that side of Matthew's game as well. Yeah, why wouldn't you want to get your best player on the ice as much as possible? Exactly. <laughs> and get the most out of him from all aspects. So th- that would definitely be cool to see. Um, from a penalty kills perspective, I love it. Like it's it's solid. There's no there's literally no holes. No. Unless there's injuries. Finals. Actually with even with injuries, like if you have Justin Haller or Brody go down, the Zach Bergoge can fill those penalty kills exactly. easily. We don't have to call Marinson. <laughs> yeah, well the fact that you have well, depending on who makes the team, you have, you know, Letton and Dermot, Sandine and Bogosian all above Shithead and in the, in the ranking, which is just fantastic. <laughs> it's just fantastic. Yeah, it's great to see. And that's the first time we've had that since he, since we I know. did that. It, it's kind of like, it's uncanny. Like, the last few years we've been like, oh, we finally have so many defensemen that, you know, Marinson's pushed down the depth chart. And then, like, one injury happens, and then two injury happens, and then Marinson's in the lineup. And we're like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> it's all because he kills penalties, goddammit. <laughs> like, just because he's a tall-ass, lanky motherfucker who's got this it's huge like, hey, body. I, I can stand in this position. He's honestly tree. one of the worst hockey players I've ever seen, <laughs> including my minor hockey career. <laughs> and I saw some pretty shit players, man. God. I played with house leaguers, and Marinson looks like one of them. And the crazy thing is that his, his, his underlying numbers aren't even bad. 
which doesn't make any sense because his his eye his eye test fails miserably. Miserably. Well, that just goes to show you that analytics are not everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he's the prime example. He is the prime example because your numbers could look great, but if you actually watch the game, you'll realize this guy's hot garbage, and he's doing a lot more bad than good. He is the worst decision maker of all time. Oh, it's it's really bad. Like, Lee fans know how bad Aki Berg was. Yeah, he's Aki Berg reincarnate, man. He's worse. He's worse. He's worse. Because I can guarantee you Martin Brinson could not play on a silver medal winning Olympic team. Akibur did. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but there's no chance he's making an Olympic team. I don't care what country he plays for. He could be fucking Japanese, and he's still not making that team. He's so bad. We're ripping on him way too hard. We're probably going to have to cut this. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't been that mean. I'm sure he's a good guy. But like, just, you know, hang up the skates, man. We just don't want to see Or just go to a different team. Yeah, like, I, I, like, go, go somewhere else. Go to the Habs. Please. Please. <laughs> just go to the Habs. Go to the Sens. Go to the Sabres. Like, any of our rivals. And let us just, like, take advantage of you like they, they've taken advantage of us for years. All right, so we're going to be moving into our closing segment of Buds or Duds. And Buds or Duds. This will be the management edition. So we are going to be looking at the current, let's say the Shanahan era Maple Leafs. And we're going to be picking our Buds or Duds based off either a specific move by this um, so management. Like a, bud, a bud of a move and a dud of a, a move? A bud of a move. individual. Yeah, so a butt of a move and a dud of a move. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a trade or a free agent signing. It, it could be literally any type of move. Um, and, you know, a, a bud in the Shanahan era and a dud in the Shanahan era. So, Ken, um, any thoughts? Well, I got a lot of thoughts. <laughs> I got a lot of thoughts. But to pick out a specific bud or dud in those, those eras... There's a lot. There's a lot. I know. That's why it's, it's uh, interesting. That's a right? lot to kind of evaluate. The dud, unfortunately. I'm going to start with my dud. Yeah, okay. Whatever comes to mind, man. The, the dud, the dud has, to be the ca- it has to be the Kadri trade. Fair. Because Kadri had such an amazing year last year, played so well for the Avalanche, and, and Barry just did the total, total opposite, and Kerfoot got screwed by injuries that like he couldn't replace any of that. And, I and I loved it at the time, but it has just aged so poorly, so so poorly. And honestly, I don't even hold it against Dubas, but as far as like an individual move, that has to be the dud. It's just it's it, it's so bad. As far as the bud, honestly, the bud is kind of hard because there's been a a bunch of really good moves. You want me to do my dud? And give you some time to think. Yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. So my dud. Oh, geez. There's a few duds. Um, my dud might have to land with Lou Lamorello, though, mm. in the Patrick Marlowe signing. Hmm. I mean, who in their right mind thought he was going to live up to that contract? I mean, he did his first year. Yeah, but everybody knew he was at, at the end of his career. We knew it was all downhill from there. Yeah, that's like a, yeah. It, there was no surprise. It should have been like a one-year deal. 
Yeah, two at most. Two, yeah, two maximum. And that's that. You know, that's why he came to the Leafs, right? Because the Leafs are the only team that offered that third year. Yeah, and and that's the thing. But they needed to offer that in order to get him. And that's the thing. I I can value what he brought to the team, but at the end of the day, it's now cost us a first round pick to get rid of that. So, which do you value more, the mentorship? Or the, the first round pick. I mean, he had a pretty positive impact on Matthews and Marner. He, he did ha- have a pretty positive impact on Matthews and Marner, but at the same time, maybe they would have been more independent without him. Yeah, maybe that's just speculation. But um, that that's that's going to be my dud, and, and you know, I think the obvious dud is you know Tyson Berry as a whole. But you know, I, I just to differentiate our, our answers a little bit, that that's going to be dud. All right, I figured out my bud. Hear it. And it's something that happened really recently. Bring it on. Cap on a trade. That's your bud? Yeah. Okay. I think the fact that we got not only a first-round pick and the, the 15th, 15th overall pick in Rodion Amirov looks like he's going to be a fucking stud, is that we got Philip Hallander as well for a guy who's probably going to max out at 30 goals playing with with Crosby, and as much as we know, we has his you know captain clutch gene. We had an abundance of his type of player, and everyone in the league knew it. And the fact that you were still able to pull out not only a a, a pick and a prospect, but a first round pick and one of their top prospects, that to me just seems like an absolute steal for a young GM and. And really, like even the guys we had to give up, like you gave up Prontis Aberg, who's literally no nobody, yeah. and and Jesper Lingren, who's also a nobody, for and, and Kapanen, obviously, but he's making three point two million, and so you're bringing in you know Philip Hadlander, who's you know making nothing. You didn't resign Evan Rodriguez, and you're getting the first round pick in in Rodion Nemirov. Like it, it just like it's a win all around in a situation that seemed where like that wasn't possible, and it. it it brings me back, like, if I was going to do a bud, like, for a while, like, my bud would actually have to go to Brian Burke for his freaking Brett Lebda trade. Genius. <laughs> not you're going too far back. Man. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> that's why it's, that's not. But this is kind of that that extra level of value. Like, I think Kaepernick is going to be good for the Penguins, but I think the value we got back for him is more more than worth what he provides. Gotcha. I mean, if I were to do, like, a secondary dud, probably be the Andreas Janssen trade but I get why they did that even th- they traded him for a fucking bag of hammers like they traded him for cap space yeah like that that's it like who the fuck is Joey Anderson <laughs> he's certainly not I mean apparently he might make the team yeah but he's certainly not Andreas Janssen and that's a straight up trade you didn't I I, w- I would have been happy if they got a fucking seventh round pick yeah I like, hear that. Just I, throw in. I, I definitely expect him to get more from Janssen, although based on the fact that he missed so much time, that did not help his case. Gotcha. You know, as far as my bud goes, um, I'm a little torn between two different ones. Jake Muzzin. Nope, Jake Muzzin was not one. Good burp, by the way. Um, one is a free agent signing. The other isn't even really a hockey move or of a person. Can I guess what they are? No. Okay. <laughs> That's stealing my thunder. Uh, so we'll start with the person one. So my bud, which really kind of solidified that Kyle Dubas is a great person, 
was how he handled the McKayev injury. And just the fact that he went to the hospital with him and stayed with him. Overnight. Overnight. It just shows... Care. Yeah, it shows how much Dubas gives a fuck. Mm-hmm. He sees these players as more than a player. They, he sees them as people. And he saw that one of his people was in a lot of trouble and was borderline near death if he didn't get medical attention right away. And that's, a, that's some serious shit. And it's really impressive to see that Dubas took that incredibly seriously and made a point to, to stay with him overnight and, and make sure he's okay. So that, that just speaks to how Dubas is a person, not necessarily a hockey move, but more so you know, a good person. Uh, if we're gonna go the hockey route, it's Which gotta you know what the podcast is about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's gotta be the TJ Brody signing, mainly because we've been searching for this for so long. Not to be a pessimist, but I hope to God that doesn't come to back to bite you in the ass. I know if he ends up being another Tyson Berry, I'm gonna fucking lose my shit. <laughs> we're gonna do a whole other episode saying that I'm a fucking. Dust. <laughs> you were the dud of the week. I am the dud <laughs> for thinking that Brody was going to be a bud. <laughs> but I, re- I really hope he will be. And I'm confident that he will be. I think he'll, he's going to be a great fit. Uh, certainly a lot better than Barry because he had that uh, other player to play with. Also, like, you know, a million times better than Cody Cece. Oh, my God. That's, he's isn't he getting paid like near the same as Cody CC. Like, like think about the fact that actually he's getting paid like five hundred thousand more. Worth it. But think about the fact that like Cody CC played like eighteen to twenty minutes a night last year, like a whole fucking period, dude. And we get to replace that directly with TJ TJ Brody. Oh my god! Like that alone just says how much of a bud mood. <laughs> right. <that is. laughs> Because you were you took the mess that was from Lamorello, mm-hmm. which like as we talked about earlier, Cody Cece was the remnants of the Zaitsev trade. Yeah, you you, kind, you were kind of stuck with him, and now you've managed to replace that awful player with one of the best defensemen league. Wouldn't go that far, but definitely the best defenseman that Riley's played with. He is, well, it depends on how big a list you're making, I guess. Well, best defenseman in the league would mean he's a top 10 player in the defenseman in the league, and he's definitely not a top 10 defenseman in the league. Okay, maybe a top 20. Yeah, that's closer to that. Yeah. But he's definitely a bona fide top pairing defenseman. Yeah. Which would put him top, as one of those. Top, which would put him I, I consider top 60. A, I consider a top pairing defenseman one of the top defensemen. Well, you realize that would be like top 60 because there's, you know, 30 pairs of 30. Yes, one pairs but the, the key keyword there is bonafide. bonafide. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Because not all the not all teams like, are, are fielding him, I, I'd have him a bonafide first pairing D man as a first pairing. I'd have him as like a top 30 D man. Like he's probably better than the best defenseman on some teams, but he's probably worse than but the beauty you know, the top is two he, guys on some teams. The beauty is he's not being brought in. To be our top, top defenseman. Because yeah, Riley's our top defenseman. He's easily better than him. Oh, <laughs> Riley is one of the best defensemen yeah, in the league. Yeah, that, that's a very fair statement. because he's Riley's he's, the top he's 10 so in good. the league. Yeah, well, let's be get fifth overall, bro. Who, I mean, in that, in that draft, realistically, he's, he's the best pick in that draft. He is. Oh, yeah. It was a brutal draft. 
Like, thank you, Riley, for getting injured in your draft year. <laughs> like, I know that probably sucked to and go thank through. Thank you, Berkey, for having faith in him. Yeah, well, I mean, he was the Berkey said he had him ranked like number one. <laughs> so, thank you, Oilers, for taking Neil Yakupov. He's not even in the league anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, think about the people who were taking ahead of him. Like, you got Galchenyuk is there, and 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 like Yakupov, like not good, dude. Imagine having a first overall pick. On your team, who not is not even in the league anymore. Uh, I mean, like they're After, they're kind of dealing. They kind of dealt with the same thing with their you know fourth overall pick a couple of years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Although apparently he might be coming back this year. So I I heard that you know apparently they're putting things up. But you know it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be really really interesting to see how how things play out this year and how how experimental they get in such a short season. I think that's that's a whole other factor that I think we might be under underappreciating is that in that shortened season you have so much less time to kind of get ready for the playoffs and and kind of figure out what works and then experiment on top of that. So everything is just kind of on an accelerated time frame, and so I'm really curious to see how they kind of evaluate and, and adopt to that. And it's interesting that you know, like the the NHL season this year is probably going to end up being like a 56 game season, and like. As minor hockey league players, we only played like 36 games, and we know how much shit changed in the even a 36 game season. So, we think about 56 games is not that is not that long, but it all, all although it kind of you know is is a pretty long time to kind of figure shit out. So, I'm really curious to see how that all plays out, and and uh, if Leafs can get back to back to the glory. Let's hope they can, and that's the the good thing is that we finally have a rough idea of how many games we might be playing this year. Finally, so some something. some th- type of progress. We finally heard something out of this deadlock of a discussion for next season, um, and it's even less than what we thought. We said it might be sixty hits, and they're already below it. And fair enough if you're not even starting until twenty twenty one. I mean, I just hope it doesn't get as low as like the lockout year of forty eight. It can't. Yeah, like. At that point, you well, may they're have... saying that they they they're, they might start it by like January fifteenth, and they want to get the Stanley Cup handed out by like early to mid July, so they can get in, then try to get back to their normal time yeah. frame. Yeah, we'll see what they do. You know, everybody's kind of guessing at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, honestly, it's it's weird because I can see both sides of the of the debate when it comes to the players and the owners. Because if you look at like the the player side of things, is like we just they they literally just renegotiated a thing in in June, right? Like why CBA? Yeah, like they just renegotiated CBA in June. So like, why why am I bothering doing this again? Like, why is this even an issue? But then on the owner side, it's like, well, because they like, things have changed. Like things have gotten worse. Yeah, and it, so like the opportunity of having fans in the stadium are a very minimal opportunity, and like the money they're gonna lose. But by not playing is actually less than the money they would by playing with no fans. You know, for once, I actually agree with the owners on this one. Whereas if you're thinking about it of an employment contract, they had renegotiated the CBA for a certain amount, but that was also with an expected amount of games played. And now those games are being pretty much cut in half. Right. So, and all of a sudden they're expected to get the same, same that salary, salary is the, and they the get summer. paid per game too. Exactly. That that's that's the thing. It's like because it's a pay per game thing. Personally, I think they should just be paid the same around that their their normal salary would pay, but reflective of the games 
well, from what I'm hearing is that they're at like the the owners are asking for like a almost like a forty percent salary deferral. They're not even saying like give up your salary. They're saying defer it to a point down the road where where they can afford to pay it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which like I get it. Like I get for the players that like maybe they're like like a Joe Thornton for instance, right? Or, like they're at the end of their career and like you just want to get make the rest of your money and get out of here. But like, what if you get a check? Years yeah, like exactly. Like, so you, if you're still gonna get a check down the, down the road for your full amount, like you're not actually losing out. And it's not like you can't <laughs> afford to not have that money right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like, I, I it's weird. I I never would have thought I would be agreeing with well, the owners, but I know I kind I I kind of do. Yeah, I I heard uh, the uh, NHLPA's lawyers going at it and kind of explaining. Oh, well, we already negotiated this in the summer, and now they're changing the the terms, and it's like. Well, the situation's changed, and it, they're not negotiating the terms of the CBA. They're negotiating the terms of this next really fucked up season, mm-hmm. which I, I can I can get on board with. Well, on that note, uh, as we're gonna finish off on supporting the owners for the first time in history, people <laughs> 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 yeah, big player, <laughs> and you'll probably never see me supporting Rogers again. But nope. uh, <laughs> that's just kind of what we're doing here, and nope. I appreciate anyone who's made it this far into the episode, and and I thank you guys for spending time with us. And as we kind of drunkenly talk about the adventures of the the Leafs training staff and and kind of where things are going, and I really hope to see you next episode. I'll never forget, go Leafs, go. <laughs> <laughs>